0: By talking to readers on the subway specifically about the books they're reading, what I get is something niche, but also something very universal, because I get an insight into their state of mind.
1: Welcome back, listeners. This is your host, Sadia Khan, with a fresh episode of Immigrant.ly. I think this one will resonate with a lot of folks because it touches upon something ordinary and for that reason, we overlook its human significance. Actually, it's more like two commonplace things. Interactions with strangers and reading. How the two overlap? Well, continue listening and you'll find out.
0: Readers are some of my favorite people. I've never met a reader I don't like. In the middle of rush hour, they go places they've never been to through someone else's story. I see best-selling novels, experimental poetry collections, provocative memoirs, well-loved classics full of sticky notes. And each reader has their own story too. Stories I started
1: to document in 2014. Today's guest, Uli Buter Cohen is a writer, content creator, and documentarian whose work comments on core aspects of the human experience. That is our identity, sense of belonging, and connection with others. She is the founder of an online platform, Subway Book Review. And by the way, she is... Thoughtfulness and intelligence personified. Uli has this spirit about her that all of us can use on a cloudy day. We not only talked about Subway Book Review, her new book Between the Lines, but also dove into issues of education and literacy. After all, while reading allows us to peek into others' lives, it is also a privilege fostered by systematic forces. Similarly, we asked questions about what it means to build connections in this day and age when so much of our world is behind screens rather than in person. I loved our conversation and cannot wait for you all to partake in it. Thank you, Lee, for coming on our show. I am so very excited. Thank you so much for having me. What a time to be here. Yes. And I want to start by talking about Subway Book Review. Sure. You're the founder of the project, turned platform, turned digital movement, if I could call that, right? Uh, When I was browsing through your Instagram, I felt like, you know what? This looks similar to Humans of New York, a distant cousin of sorts, right? But you have more niche focus. Your platform is focused on a setting, right? It's uh, the subway and human behavior, which is reading. Tell me, what inspired you to start documenting and interviewing subway riders about what they were reading. Thank you for this. And I want to say, you know,
0: thank you for acknowledging, of course, Humans of New York. But I think that I'm part of a really long lineage of New York storytellers who have photographed the streets of New York. You know, Jamal Shabazz comes to mind, um, who photographed people very much in Harlem um, at a time when no one was doing that. And I think there are so there's such a gigantic legacy of us. Thank you for placing me in it and putting me there. <laughs> um, and, um, of course, also amazing women who have photographed the streets of New York for a very long time. So I just want to acknowledge that and make room for all the ancestors who who have come before me and say that I'm doing it now at this time and place. But I definitely have so many people who inspire me and who have done street photography in a very specific way. I wanted to be very direct with people and approach Mm -hmm. them with their permission and co-create with them. And so I have done that by speaking to readers on the subway for the last seven years. Wow! I've ridden every train line front to back through New York City. (laughs) I've covered all five boroughs. Yes, your girl has been to Staten Island on the train. Of course, we have to, you know, level the playing field. And by talking to readers on the subway specifically about the books they're reading, what I get is something niche but also something very universal. Mm. because I get an insight into their state of mind and the state of mind of New York City is famous. Mm. I mean, we have it in songs. We have it in movies. It you know, flows through the entire global life. We're fascinated with it. And so that is really what I'm seeking, right? I want to ask someone very honestly and also very lovingly, well, who the hell are you yeah. and where are you going and who are you seeking to become? And I think that conversation
1: is possible because of the book, Hmm. So Uli, tell me, can you recall a particular interaction that stood out? I'm sure all interactions are memorable, right? But something that you look back and, you know, it puts a big smile on your face. Yeah, one
0: conversation that is just such a beautiful reflection of this domino effect of connection Mm -hmm. in New York, right? Was when I was roaming the subway on Valentine's Day, I think it was 2018 or 2019, and I saw this woman reading An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. And I thought, perfect, what a match for Valentine's Day. Let's talk about love. Let's talk Ah. about marriage. And I approached this woman, and then as I got closer, it was too late to turn around because we had made eye contact, so we were committed. But I saw that she was maybe not um, having a good day. Oh. Uh, but I went up to her anyway, and I said, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. May I ask you what you're reading? Which is my opening line. If you meet me, you know. If you've met me, you know. She looked at me, and she I could feel it that she was really considering whether she should just turn away, and she decided not to. And her name is Maya Marie. We ended up having a long conversation. We talked for 30 minutes or so on the platform, and... Um, she told me that she had just been brutally dumped by someone oh. who she was supposed to marry and who not just dumped her but fully ghosted her and just disappeared that's brutal and she described this in such depth and in such relatable um with such relatable emotionality that you know we hugged we cried together we had the we ran the full gamut of that breakup together and She was so generous in that. And she said, yes, share it, because I can't be the only person on Valentine's Day Ah. who's feeling this way. Flash forward to 2020. Um, Yes, I did talk to her in 2018, because it was years later that that I looked her up again and wanted to reconnect and see how she was doing, because I was writing my book Between the Lines, Stories from the Underground. And I thought, man, that was such a good conversation. Let's find out. And She had ended back then with the question, well, how does one build a family and how does one do that? Mm. And what are the ways to do that? And we had kind of left it open on that. So I was like, maybe she's found out. Maybe she has something to say about this now. (laughs) So to tell you briefly, I reconnected with her. We got on the phone because it was the pandemic. We couldn't meet in person. And she told me that she did expand her family, but in a very different way than she had thought. And she told me that our conversation inspired her to look at her neighborhood differently. And she recognized that an older lady was often sitting in the same park as her at the same time. Started to connect with her, started to speak with her. The woman's name is Cosette who had lost her entire family. Her husband had died. She didn't have children, so it was just her. And Maya Marie decided to adopt this elderly lady named Gazette. They now spend holidays together. They do Christmas and Thanksgiving together. They see each other every weekend. And Maya Marie said, you know, our conversation on that broken, messed up Valentine's Day, now I have a new family member. Very different than I thought, but here we are. And I think it's moments like that that are the most fulfilling to me. Press is nice, you know, all the vanities are are so much fun, of course, but they really don't matter as much as truly passing on this idea that when you observe and when you listen, your life becomes so much bigger and so much richer.
1: I hear you. This is so inspiring, Uli, and it's so profound yet so simple because all your conversations, they start with a small act which is to speak, approach a stranger, right? Now, when I think about that, first, I can't do that. I couldn't do that. I wish I could. But before we had headphones, it would have been easier, right? Now people have headphones and then especially during pandemic and now even post, although we are still in the midst of COVID, I shouldn't be saying post. People are wary of sharing physical space, with other individuals, right? Through the lens of Subway Book Review, and as a longtime New Yorker, how have you seen New York's social, social ecosystem evolve or change um, with all the changes that we are seeing around us? Is it harder to have conversations now than, say, I don't know, three years ago? There were certainly more books on the subway before pre-Wi-Fi,
0: which was installed, I think, in 2017 or so. And then, of course, you know, the trains that run above ground had access to cell service much sooner. But... Pre-Wi-Fi, you could get into any train and there were plenty of books to be found because we, as New Yorkers, we don't have as much time. We're busy people, right? We pride ourselves on making use of every minute of every day. But we're also very uh, well-read and multifaceted Mm. and very interested and curious people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And um, the train for many people is the time that they read. It is Mm. the time. Interesting. that still exists. It's much less so the case. But many people tell me, well, if I don't read on the train, when do I read? It's huh. it's it's uh, non negotiable. Yeah. So in terms of sharing space, I think last year certainly I wouldn't approach someone and oh. you know, get into their personal bubble to converse, but Even now that we're still in the pandemic and we're figuring out what this new way of life is for all of us, people are much more excited and comfortable again to let others in. And um, we're all masked, of course. Uh, So we're keeping safety precautions as a high priority. And I think people are absolutely thirsty to connect and to now also digest and to heal together because we can't forget that last year and this year is shaking so much trauma loose for everybody involved how are we going to digest that? How are we going to even Mm. begin to process it? Mm. We need each other for that and how do we do it? By speaking to each other and more importantly by listening to each other.
1: Have you seen any change in people's reading habits? Like, are people reading more books about self-care and health Um, and even science in general? Like, have you seen that shift because of COVID?
0: Yes, I think that right now a lot of people want to read about nature and Mm. they want to find their place in nature and i think it's um also of course a big year for sci-fi last year was a big year for sci-fi yeah. octavia e butler was all over the place right because um and someone actually in conversation uh mary anais haglar a, a climate science um writer said it so beautifully she said well octavia e butler was the black Nostradamus. so if you want to know what's coming read her books and i think it's a mix of that it's a It's absolutely a deep desire to look into the future Mm. and to look into the future through the lens of Black writers, Indigenous Mm. writers, and to also look into our connection to nature through the lens of Indigenous and Black writers. And I think that is really beautiful because that's what we've been asked to do, especially as white people last year, is to look to Black and BIPOC leadership and to let those people lead the way into the future. So... I see that reflected. Mm-hmm. And I also, last year, of course, saw a lot of books about activism. I saw Asada Shakur. I saw Malcolm X's biography all over the trains. And I think we forget that we don't read bestseller lists. We read those two, but we really read to understand our place in the world. And Minjin Lee, an author who is in my book Between the Lines, said this beautifully. You read a book to get an answer or a solution to your problem. And right. there is no problem that a book can't solve.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: So I do believe that is absolutely the case. And mm. yeah, we have a lot to figure out
1: these days. Have you ever been criticized for featuring a book or had to rethink the appropriateness of a post, and you were like, oh my gosh, why did I post this? I shouldn't have posted this. Or, you know, if you got backlash on something you posted. I think that, you know, when an author
0: like Jonathan Franzen makes remarks or J.K. Rowland makes remarks that are absolutely just not necessary nor helpful um, at the at the least worst case scenario and destructive and hateful on the other end of the spectrum, right. um, I don't go back and Erase anything that happened years ago. But would I post them now? Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, Because they don't those voices don't need to be amplified, um, nor be given the space Mm. in terms of criticism. I go out of my way to ensure that the person that I interview, and this is where some might say, "Oh, you don't operate like a journalist." And sure, I'm a storyteller, I'm a healer foremost. So, right. you know, you can't you can't come at me with that because I already, you know, to some degree, maybe agree. Though I am deeply rooted in documentation. But I believe that it's very important for the person to have insight into what is said about them. So I share the interview texts. I Mm -hmm. show the people the photo that I take of them. And that's what I mean by co-creating. I think that in the creative industries, in any industry, it's very important to consider the ownership you take over someone and over someone's story, over their likeness, over their voice. And we need to become more mindful of that. There's a huge difference between ownership and credit. Right. And we need to start thinking about that very differently. Let's talk about
1: that difference. How do you view them differently?
0: If I take ownership over someone, I'm acting like any person who's come up in the patriarchal and capitalist system, and I've learned nothing. (laughs) Um, And to me, you know, that means... um, And, uh, you know, obviously, journalism operates like that. You don't have control over how you're being edited. Mm -hmm. Someone spends maybe 30 minutes with you. Someone spends an hour with you. They build an opinion, and that opinion is widely shared. I believe that there is an opportunity to give that person the chance to say, I feel appropriately reflected or this is not a reflection of me. And most of the time when I give someone that chance, the story becomes richer. They don't take out my favorite parts. Many, many times I even get, this is perfect. I love this. Thank you. You know, and the person is feeling like they're getting credit for their story. And it's
1: an additive process versus it's something that's taken from them. I'm sure it also has something to do with ownership. They feel that sense of control on what they want you to share. Given the crazy social media ecosystem, we share stuff that we are probably not supposed to without the consent of other people, and we just do it so casually without realizing what the repercussions could be, right?
0: Absolutely. Someone might be telling me something that they later might realize jeopardizes Mm. them, I recently interviewed undocumented writers, and it was very absolutely critically important for them to be part of the process to keep them safe. Mm. And they were thrilled you know, to be featured because we need to hear from them, we need to understand what their experience is like, but then we need to do it in a setting that's appropriate. And I love that you say consent, because yes, as a storyteller, if you're
1: sharing someone else's story, consent is huge let's take a step back and talk about your journey. Now, you were born in Germany and you lived abroad for quite a few years before you immigrated to the U.S., right? I came from that tiny German village directly to the United States with two suitcases at Ah, age 20. Mm -hmm. So what prompted you to make that move? So for listeners who... Probably cannot see, obviously cannot see us. Uli is white. We have our, I think, third or fourth white immigrant. (laughs) On Immigrantly, we normally don't. So yeah, how was that? What prompted you to come to the U.S.? First of all, I'm laughing dying over here.
0: I'm so proud to go in the Hall of Fame of white people. Honestly, like never have I been more proud to be white. Maybe the only time. I don't know. You, you tell me. Um, you know, as an immigrant from Germany, to then become a white person was a total trip because ah. in Germany, I'm not white. In Germany, I'm German, French, Hungarian and Transylvanian, which is my European legacy. And so the process of becoming white in America was a freaking journey because race is not embedded in our German system the way that it's
1: embedded here. Whiteness was not part of your consciousness when you came to the U.S., Mm -hmm. right? But unfortunately, as you pointed out, in U.S., it is pretty much part of everybody else's consciousness, right? How was that transition like for you when people were branding you as this white immigrant from Germany? What did you notice about people's attitudes towards you and the privilege that came Mm -hmm. with whiteness? Well, this this is such a fantastic question, I want to say, because
0: that journey was a wild ride, because... What I was leaving behind in Germany was to some degree a Nazi past, right, which Mm -hmm. was a nationalistic lens on life. And I was raised throughout my entire life and in 13 years of schooling to absolutely reject that and to do better, know better, to be an open-minded person. We literally... In every class, read books, went on field trips, visited museums, visited memorial sites, visited concentration camps. So this is deeply ingrained in me, the idea that it is on me that injustices Mm -hmm. done to other people based on who they are are unacceptable. And I must do everything in my power as an individual to prevent it. This Mm -hmm. is how I was raised, right? Then I come here and my accent was I never had. It's a very strong German accent. (laughs) I never had that, but I definitely had more of an accent. And so then people wanted to talk about Nazis with me when they heard my accent, which was jarring and shocking. And they Mm. would want to know if I had Nazi grandparents um, when I didn't want to talk about it with them, they would ask me all kinds of other strange questions that was really a confrontation that I wasn't ready for. That's pretty messed up. So I had to find my way into that and had to kind of build up a bit of a toughness mm. toward that and had to figure out what my answers were. Once my accent over the years lessened, I then had to confront being a white person mm. and not necessarily an immigrant because then I was people thought I was just from the Midwest. Right. And whiteness, to me, stands for the very thing that I was taught to reject, which is that you take something about yourself and you make it better than everyone else. And also in the name of whiteness, oppression occurs, destruction occurs, etc. So it's like, no way. Like, you got this all wrong. I'm not white. Based Ah. on my values, that is not me. And then it took me another moment to realize that it was how I am perceived by others, privilege that I get because of that, which is inherent and I can't do anything about. And that was a trip. That it is something that is assigned to me, that is a value that society assigns to me, whether I want it or not, and that I have to work with it from that place of knowledge. But that was a
1: long journey. How are you working (laughs) with that, given that place of knowledge? How have you used your whiteness to basically eradicate a lot of racial and societal inequities that we see around us. What is your, and I don't want to use the term activism because it's a very loaded term and it means different things for different people. And it's a serious term that people use casually, but what does that look like to you?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, for seven years, I've created a space where People are at the forefront who are not naturally given the mic, especially in media, especially in entertainment, especially in publishing. And I don't put myself front and center. Mm. I think the most important thing is to step back and to use the privilege to create opportunities Mm. for other people. And I know that sounds very kind of cliche, but in action, that's actually sometimes harder than it seems. There are so many ways that you can do it. Um, writing organizers, asking what they need and how I can support them, creating space for performances Mm. for people who are not me. I mean, once you understand how much power you actually have, Have. it is really easy to give (laughs) it to other people. But I think the first critical step is to even assign yourself that and to to accept that -hmm. you have it. Mm -hmm. And I think that as women, we're also often told, which, right, we're all intersectional, I had to first figure out that I have power, which I didn't give
1: myself credit for. I like that. I really like that, Huli. Now I want to go back to your platform. There are so many good things about your platform, right? Just the universality of it. This platform reports from over 20 countries around the world, which is incredible. It lends itself to this notion that reading and literature are not specific to a culture or a geography, right? It is transcending those geographic and cultural boundaries. In other words, it's like universality should be in some ways honored through this platform and through our shared experiences of reading a book. It's as simple as that. But at the same time, we see there is an issue with literacy, right? There are a number of countries where stories are not really published in written form, and education disparities in in a way, inhibit a lot of folks from being able to access or understand these texts. That's, a, I guess, limitation that many in the U.S. may not understand, although it exists in the U.S. as well, despite it being one of the most developed nations in the world. I would like to hear your thoughts, Uli, on this matter and how you think we might be able to bridge this divide. Mm. Knowledge
0: is absolutely power. So we also have to understand when knowledge is purposefully withheld from us. And I think one of the most beautiful things that we can do is to understand that for some people, you know, having a printed book, that's a luxury item. Right. That reading is something that is um, for the elite, quote unquote, which now, thankfully, at least books are made available so much more, right? There are the little libraries. There are so many great programs that bring books to other countries. There is so much attention brought to how many books are banned and to get them in the hands of people anyway. Um, So there's a lot of work happening, I think, on making printed books accessible. But I think we can't we absolutely can't rule out the incredible value of oral storytelling Mm. as well. And I think we see that in the rise of podcasting and in the rise of audiobooks, because even if we can't read, maybe we can find a place to listen again, right? Mm. Listening really is the thing that wants to heal us as people, period. And I stand by that. And that is the number one thing that we're all here on this earth to do is to heal ourselves and to heal other people. That is it. We Mm -hmm. have no other job on this Mm -hmm. planet other than that. And when we can do that, we can also heal Mother Earth and everything else in our life. So how do you arrive at healing? You have to understand your place in the world. You have to see who you are. You have to explore your identity. You have to anchor in it. Again, Mary Anise Haglar said, um, the one thing that you have to do is find out who you are and then really make yourself okay with it, which I love. That's your number one step. And there are so many ways to arrive at stories. I think that, you know, just in New York City, we have Link NYC, which are the digital kiosks that provide free Wi-Fi. It's things like that where we just... Giving access to each other. And bridging that gap. And right. bridging the gap is hmm. so important. Do there need to be more programs that literally create connection and also access? A hundred percent. If you're listening and you're like, I am I need a cool thing to do. I need a cool thing to change the world with. Please, more access to connection. Huh. It's the number one thing that we need on an equal playing field, not
1: more access for the ones who already have it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So let's talk about your book. Uh, by the time this episode airs, I think, I think you'll officially be a published author. When is your book oh, releasing? Sadia, it all just changed.
0: Oh. The supply chain, the supply chain. She oh, has no. come into my life. So, the new publishing date is November 9th.
1: This episode is probably <laughs> going to release after that. <laughs> Great. Yes, I will. So, you will I officially am. be a published author. Yay. We yes. are so excited. So, first, congratulations. Thank you. How would you describe this book? Mm. Well,
0: first of all, you have to know that she's a Scorpio girl. Yeah. She's born in November, so she's mysterious. She's feisty, and she's ready to give you the goods. That sounds maybe funny, but you know what I mean. Um, it's 170 interviews. It's some, wow. It's a collection of some of my favorite encounters, but I've spoken to over a 1,000 people easily at this point. It's um accumulation of seven years of work, and what you're going to find in it are people— who are reading books, but beyond that, they're going to tell you how they're living life, and they're answering questions about who they want to become and what kind of future they want to see and create. And I think that over the last years, we've all become so much better at recognizing individual voices Mm. and listening to individual voices that are truly diverse and have truly diverse things to Mm. say, which my book captures. But I think what we have to do now is we have to take these voices and we need to let them sing this universal song to us. And that's what this book provides. Mm-hmm. It's it's really, it's a song about what we can do together as mm-hmm. a collective. And it may give you ideas about very specific um, projects that you might want to take on. It might give you a new reading list. It might introduce someone whose life you would have never known anything about, and you might fall in love with them like I did. Um, It might do all kinds of things, but hopefully most of all, it's going to give you a really good place to listen.
1: I can't wait to read all those stories. And maybe we'll do a giveaway of your book, Oli, and we'll share it with our listeners. Ooh, that I would be fun, love right? That. <laughs> yes. So now that we have been nerding out this interview, let's talk about your favorite author. So if you could have dinner or grab coffee with any author, living or dead, who would it be?
0: Hands down, Colson Whitehead. Dear Mr. Whitehead, I know I've written you so many emails asking you for an interview. (laughs) Maybe we'll do coffee. I don't know. Lower hanging fruit. Um, His publicist by now is like, hi, Uli. Sorry. Still no. But... (laughs) Keep trying. And it's really because I find um, he's written one of my favorite books, which is The Colossus of New York. Mm -hmm. And um, man, that book just really moved the needle for me in terms of giving me permission to weave myself into the quilt that is New York City and even feeling allowed to document this place and how he speaks about a time and a place is so phenomenal and inspiring. Would love to sit down. Can be it. decaf or regular calf. <laughs> Any place, really, I'm available. Any subway station. Um, I won't even try to come to your home, Mr. Whitehead. Whatever works for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, in the end, if you were to describe America, how would you do that? Oh, America, you broken,
0: promising teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I know your hormones are going crazy right now, <laughs> but I think you can make it.
1: I think you got it in you, girl. <laughs> oh my gosh, this was so good, Willie. Really. Uh, thank you for this incredible, fun, crazy, messy uh, interview. I just loved every, every bit of it. Um, and I can't wait for your book to release. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me into your space. i am so impressed with uli's innate ability to connect with strangers strike up a conversation get to know them especially new yorkers who won't give anyone the time of day I had so much fun interviewing her and I hope you had fun listening to our conversation. And if you do, as always, please share, subscribe, download and come back next week when we have another incredible story for you. Take care.